Welcome to the Building Lives Podcast, hosted by Joe Fury. We're a show that deals with healing, restoring, and navigating relationships. We post weekly to YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for tuning in. You know, it's so weird. Um, Everywhere I speak now, they always want me to talk about that. You know, perseverance in faith and, and staying on course for a long time. So what that keeps ringing in my ears is I must be old. <laughs> Get the old guy up there. Talk about how you did this. <laughs> and this is the deal. Perseverance is another name for faith in the long haul. And perseverance is the character trait of success. They've done study after study after study of what makes people successful in any endeavor in life, and it's the ability to persevere, which, is the, which means to stay on task no matter what's going on. Doesn't mean we don't take rest, doesn't mean we don't you know, have to deal with our own stuff, because we do, but you have uh, an ability to endure, and, and it was in a number of scriptures that were shared to, uh, today that uh, perseverance is the key to success. Perseverance doesn't mean just trudging along and hanging in there and life sucks and I just got to suck it up till I, you know, till I can't do it no more. Perseverance is the ability to carry burdens, carry stuff, but yet still function well. It's the ability to deal with things so that you can function well. I was talking to someone recently about their marriage and they were telling me about you know, how hard it is and how this and that and she's that and, and of course her side is he's that and this is this. And I, and I asked him, I said, Are, let me ask you this, how much investment have you put into studying about marriage? What books have you read? What have you done to become students of marriage so that you can gain knowledge and you can do marriage better? How much involvement have you put into that? Oh, no, we've never... No, we've never read anything, really. We've never gone to anything. We've never, you know. Um, we went to a counselor once. I didn't like him. We never went back. You know, she, you know I said, well, if you try another counselor that works for you, no, no, no. That, you know what? I don't really need that anyway. Well, how do you expect to be good at something if you're not a student of it? Name me one other area in life where you don't have to do any study on it, and you're really good at it. I remember playing the drums. I, didn't, I always wanted to play the drums. And my dad bought me a snare when I was like 12, and there was a guy at the corner that taught drums, and he came for one lesson. And I never saw the guy again, never did a lesson, never got, it never did anything. And when I was 40, and my son was 12, and he wanted to play drums, I said, uh, man, that's what I always wanted to do. But for something in my head, it, I was always locked up into not ever be, taking it myself. You know, a lot of our childhood stuff 
we still think childish ways. And a childish ways is, I, nobody got me drums when I was 12, nobody put me into lessons, nobody really invested in me to, in this arena. And so I took that into adulthood. I never invested in me. I could have afforded a drum kit, but it never dawned on me to invest in that to become a drummer. So I bought a first drum kit when I was 40 years old, and we invested in my son taking lessons and yada, yada, yada. And then I started drumming because I always wanted to drum. And, and I started, but I, and I used to play in the worship band and uh, till they got real drummers. And, uh, <laughs> that, and then I'd, my son started playing in it because he was a real drummer. But uh, I would, I, I rose up to a skill set of Joe. I was self-taught. I'd listen to rock and roll. I'd watch videos, see what the drummer did, and I'd try to mimic that. But I never got lessons because that scared me. And I took it personally that if I didn't know what to do, I didn't want the, I thought the drum teacher would laugh at me. I didn't know they were there to help because my idea of getting help was it was a put down to me. Or at least I felt like that. Anybody else feel like that? You know, we don't let people really influence our lives because that means I'm stupid. That means I don't know. This is not on my notes, so we're going to be here a while. <laughs> but uh, I know, these guys don't care about 30. I never care about 30. <laughs> They say, don't bring notes. It's like, it's a suggestion. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I got to a place in ministry that if I wanted to go to the next level, I'd matured enough to realize if I wanted to go to the next level to play with the band we have today and the skill set of those guys who read music and understand music and have gone to school for music, if I wanted to do that, be at that level, I'd have to do what they did. And in my world, I had to say, well, if I, am I going to devote the time to becoming a student of that, which would take me away from devoting my time to my main call, which is to ministry and to pastoring? I couldn't do both of them because I also had a call to be a husband I also had a call to be a father. I had these other roles to play, and then I have to decide where am I going to invest my energy because I can't invest it in everything, and neither can you. So to persevere in the long run, we have to say no to some things because we're choosing something else, and then I have to invest in that. That's how we become successful in the long haul. Anything you've been successful in, you've invested in. I became a dope fiend. I spent a lot of investment in that. Practiced unrelentingly. You know, unrelentingly. I could sit by a phone for hours patiently waiting for the calls Kid, couldn't give them three minutes. 
I had to practice being present in my relationships. I had to learn how to listen. I had to invest in that. What is communication skills? How does that work? What, what, how profound has my childhood experiences affected my life? I don't know. I never look at them. I don't think they affect me at all when they're affecting everything in my life. I had to become a student of that. How did I get to where I am? How do you parent? I had examples of it, good, bad, and ugly. But if I wanted to be good for the long haul, I had to invest in it. So what does that look like? Well, perseverance in our faith, if I, and everybody's been talking about the word today, and the word is super important. I have to invest in that if I want to be like Jesus. I have to invest in the things Jesus did. I have to examine that. Well, it doesn't just happen. Nothing just happens. If I want to be good at it. So perseverance of faith is not a long race. It's not a long race. It's not like, wow, I sit here and I look at this long race. It is many short races, one after another. That's how we get into the long haul. It's a bunch of short races. Want to be a good drummer? My grandson now, we take him to drumming. And, and we take him to lessons. It's one lesson after another lesson after another lesson, after another lesson, after another lesson. Investing in short races. He's played for a year now. I've seen him in two different public performances. And I said, oh, I can see he's getting better. I can see he's, I'm still better than him. But <laughs> he's 12 and I'm 66. So I played a straight 10 years but he already knows how to read a drum music sheet, how to hit the cymbal. Every cymbal has what you do with the kick, the snare, the tom, the small, you know, it's all in there. So that is going to enable this boy to play any genre of music. Whoo! Mind-blowing to me. I could never play anything like that. But that's what short races one after the other does. You guys following me? That's how we do it. We get better. Talk to people that have been divorced and, I, and they want to get in another relationship. I ask them, well, what, what, what was your role in that marriage? What did you do well? What'd you, how'd you fail this marriage? What, what was your part in this? What have you done to heal from that so you don't dump it on the next chick? And then if you're dating somebody, what is she doing? Where does she come from? If she's 50 years old, 40 years old, she's got a history. She's got history too. What has she done? Well, I don't know, she's got big boobs. She said she likes me. That's good, right? That's it? 
I back into everything in my life. Listen, so what do we do? Here's what it does. Here's what we need. Here's where we need to start. You want to be good from this point on in your life. You want to experience good in the long haul of the different things you have going on. You simply do what Ecclesiastes 9.10 says. Whatever your hand finds to do. Whatever it is that's already in your hands. See, you don't have to go out there to find God's will. You've already got God's will in a number of areas in your life. They're already in your hands. You're single, be good single. Be whole single. What else you got going on in your life? I'm an employee. Be a good employee. Be an honest employee. What, what else you got going on in your hands? I'm a Christian. Then, then invest in it. What is in your hand? Do it with your might. The word might there means do it with investment. And that's how we get good. And see, as I invest in something, my ability in it expands. Now I am more valuable. I am much more valuable than I was. And therefore, I can give in a better way, in a more holistic way. This is what I've learned as, we've journeyed with, as I've journeyed with God. The central challenge for us followers, followers of Jesus is giving up the expectation of knowing what God is doing. Quit worrying about what God is doing in your life and do what's already in your life. And it's going to be hard stuff, good stuff, up stuff, down stuff, lows, highs. It's going to encompass it all. And give up the idea of where is he taking me? Because when we start worrying about where he's taking me, we always want to help him. Just like Pastor Brian said about David, wants to help, good thing. God's taken me somewhere. I just think I need to help him out on that. I need to quicken it. And giving up those things, while I give up something, I'm putting something else in me. And what am I putting in? Trust. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. That he is taking me somewhere. And when I get there, he'll let me know. And while I am on that journey, I have work to do now. Now. Let me tell you a story to illustrate this. About three months after Sarah, our daughter, was murdered, after Sarah was murdered, I, we took about a month, and for two, uh, I took a month away from church, and in that month, the first two weeks is we had to fly down to Texas and we had to go through guardianship and we had to go to court like five times and, and, and the whole process of getting rid of a house that, you know, they, don't, they didn't have anymore. And, you know, I mean, everything was 
And Teresa and I have oftentimes asked ourselves, we never even talked about should we take these kids. We just went and did it. So now we're in the process of fostering them out. And now... <laughs> 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 Just kidding. <sighs> I shared a little bit of Teresa and my humor that we have in our own room about this whole thing. <laughs> but so that was going on about three months into that. Um, at the same time, you know, I, we're in turmoil, we're in grief, I'm, we're struggling. We've got a whole new world. We've got super damaged kids. Um, we got all this stuff going on. And along with that, there was issues going on at the church, and one of our church plants was a problem. And I mean, there was church issues going on. I'm grieving my daughter. I'm struggling with all those feelings. And uh, we're dealing with the night terror of the 20-month-old who would wake up three times a night and would be inconsolable in night terrors. We couldn't even, it, we, he, he was like gone. And I come to find out as we invested into what's going on is that when a child cannot verbalize, they internalize and then they, their body carries the trauma. And so their body screams and he's screaming and he's out of control and we're going through this all the time. And... Uh, um, And I was frustrated at church. I was frustrated with some people. I was feeling judgmental toward other people. I was feeling pity. You know, I, was, I mean, we were going through a bunch of stuff. You know, it was just a regular spiritual day. And, uh, in the, and I was called um, to minister to someone in the hospital. And so that's the backdrop of this story. The reason I'm telling you this is because in the midst of my own persevering and carrying burdens and troubles and trials, I still had a job to do. And I still had to put bread on the table, and church pays me, so that's how I put bread on the table. And so um, I'm still uh, having to deal with life while I'm navigating my own stuff and a whole new thing of parenting at 61 years old, starting with another family to raise and all that that entails. And then I get a call to go to the hospital. So I'm going to read you a little bit of what I wrote of that experience. Because remember, perseverance is not a long race. It's many short, short races. So this is just another short race in one day of many, many days of short races, just like you, you guys go through, just like you do. It's no different. In the early afternoon, I went to UCI Hospital with the hope of bringing comfort to a man named Dave, who was getting ready to have a life-prolonging procedure to clear his left carotid artery so that blood could flow better to his face and brain. 
Because of that lack of blood and the lack of the ability to drain, his head had gone to about twice the size of normal. And the right side of his face was swollen, and the left side where that carotid was was twice as big. He did not look human. He was completely distorted. In fact, he looked like a character in a horror movie. And that was not even the worst problem. The rest of his body was riddled with cancer, and he had been given a couple months to live. I prayed on the way there that God would give me some words of comfort for him, for I did not know him well, and had only met him a couple of months earlier at church when I prayed for his healing. Upon reaching the intensive care unit where he was at, I made a right instead of a left and walked all the way through the wrong wing of this part of the hospital. You know, there's a thing that happens when you have great trauma and you have loss. You have what's called grief brain, and you can't remember things. So I, I couldn't remember his room, and, and for whatever reason, I didn't ask, and I'm just going from room to room to room to room, looking inside the door to see if this is the guy's, you know, ICU room. And UCI's uh, ICU is it's big. There's a lot of rooms. So, passing from room to room of people battling to stay alive, many rooms had family member, members huddled around the patients and who were their loved ones. Others had no one but the patients and the attending nurse, either inside the room or sitting at a desk right outside. I began to notice that my mind began to get quiet as I began to feel more and more present, being aware of this place as a sacred space, the ICU, something started to happen in me and I, I started to feel that this was a sacred space between life and death. These people in these rooms were going one way or the other. And there was a sacredness to it. It, was, it started to become spiritual. And what happened is my head started to calm down from all the things in my own world. And I started to be there. After being directed to the right section of the ICU, I entered his room and it was crowded. Dave was surrounded by family, his mom, his dad, his sister, his nephew, his best friend, and his brother and a nurse were in the room along with his two young sons, one 11 and one nine. The boys introduced themselves like little gentlemen and did not appear to grasp the magnitude of the situation. Everyone was scared and emotionally drained. It had already been a long two-year battle. After introductions with those I did not know, I asked if David and I could have a few minutes alone. They obliged and went out to the hall. I have been doing hospital visits for many years and have become much more of a take-charge spiritual person not afraid to get real with the gravity of situations that required gravity. David's preparation for eternity 
was my main concern, seeing he was not far from there. Yet my heart broke inwardly when I saw his boys leave the room so we could talk. I was overwhelmed with sadness for these boys. I knew what they were heading towards, the death of their dad. Since they had attended our church, I, I made a note to myself, I must talk to these young children about their feelings, but, right now, but not right now, it's about Dave. So I sat down in a chair, pulled up close to the bed he was sitting up on, and he, he swung around and he was facing me. He had a trach in his throat so he could not speak and he was communicating via a notepad. We shook hands and we looked at each other eyes to eyes because one of his eyes, left one, was swollen shut. I asked him if he was ready to see Jesus. He shook his head no and started writing on the pad. And when he was done, he handed this pad to me. He wrote, and I can still see it clearly in my mind like a photograph. He said, I am a widower and I have two sons, one 11 and one nine, and I worry about them. He wrote, I have known the Holy Spirit in Jesus since I was a boy, but I am worried about being forgiven for my past sins. I don't know 100% if I'm going to heaven. I looked up at him and there was nothing else in this world that concerned me or him at that moment. You want to develop perseverance, you do it in short races and you do it a day at a time. See, if you stay in the journey, God can use you on any day beyond your stuff that you're dealing with. And that's the key for longevity is you suit up and you show up day to day. Doesn't mean you don't take times to be restored and work on your stuff, but you also don't check out. Check in. I was totally present. It was just him, me, and Jesus. Addressing the ultimate concerns of all people when everything is stripped away so I knew we were gonna address what I've addressed with many people as they get ready to pass because all the other stuff fades away when you know you're moving in that direction. For a lot of us, when we're young, death is a, is a theory, unless you've experienced it young in different ways and you know it ain't a theory and that can mess with you too. But we, I knew sitting there looking at him with all the gadgets on him, he's in a world that unless God does some kind of mighty miracle, he's got a short time to live. So with all the many concerns of life, at times they get whittled down to only three. Those we love who will be left behind God and eternity. Those are always the three things I've experienced with people when they were getting ready to possibly leave. They were concerned about people. They oftentimes look back and think of the relationships. 
often with regret. They think about God and what's it look like in the future. What what does all that mean? I remember Teresa's dad when he was at this place and we were sitting with him. You know, my wife had the honor to lead her dad on his deathbed pretty much to the Lord. Um, and you know what he said? Because he divorced her mom. They had seven kids. And he, and he divorced his mom for the neighbor woman. And it probably was not his first go around with someone else. He said, man, you know, the biggest thing I ever regret in my life was leaving your mom, telling that to Therese. Because she gave me you guys. I haven't been a good dad. And in the relational part, he wasn't. He couldn't do it. He just never became good at it. Never did the work necessary to become good at it. And a lot of it was because of his childhood stuff and, you know, all that kind of stuff. He was good with money. He left everybody an inheritance. He took care of his wife, even though he divorced her 30 years earlier. He always paid her alimony way beyond the years that he was supposed to. He took care of his ex-wife because she gave him seven children. And in that, I honor him. But he regretted it. So I began my response with Dave by addressing his first worry, his sons. I shared with him the first truth I know, and that is this. I don't know why God will most likely, unless he does a miracle, take you home to heaven. I don't know why he will do that. I'm going to pray for a miracle And if he chooses to take you home, I don't know why he's doing that to leave your two boys. And remember, I just got three kids a couple months ago, and I didn't know why that all happened either. So I'm not going to tell this guy a lie because I don't know. I don't know what God does, why he does it all the time. I have no idea. He's God. He's sovereign. He gets called the shots. My job is to trust him because he said he's trustworthy. He said he'll work it out for good. All right. I do believe that deep in my heart, and that's what enables me to keep going. I believe he's got a plan. I believe it's a good plan because he's a good God. I said, I don't know why, David, he might take you home leaving your boys without a mother or father. I have no answer for that because it just doesn't make sense. And it doesn't seem right. Then I shared what I also know. God is good. And that God loves you, David, and he loves your boys. So God will not abandon them. And if God takes you home to heaven, you will be in their lives. And God will take care of them. I shared that we all will leave this earth at some point. We just don't get to choose often how or when. But he is a good God. And that is what we hold on to. And I shared God's plan, even in this situation, will prove to be good. We don't know it now. See, I'm ministering to him 
while I'm ministering to me. And that's the beauty when we minister. It's a two-way street. I told him, we don't know it now, but we will someday understand, and it will prove to be good. I told him those boys will always be his, and he will be theirs for all eternity, and he will be part of their lives here or there. He nodded his head, yes. Then we talked about Jesus removing his sins and dying that we may live, and he listened perhaps in a way he never listened before. As I explained, he started crying. And out of the one eye, tears were flowing. And he exhaled a deep sigh of relief and understanding and the peace. It was tangible. The peace and comfort of the Holy Spirit descended upon him and, and me. And it was palpable. And after we spoke for about 15 minutes more, he asked that his family come back in. And they did. And we all prayed and I anointed him with oil. After we finished, David turned and grabbed the notepad and wrote, I did not feel the oil, he wrote. So immediately I grabbed the little vial I had and poured it on his head. He nodded. He felt it. It was as if God had literally touched him in that moment. Everyone hugged, and I was shaken as he hugged his young sons tight and kissed their heads, perhaps for the last time on earth, for he was going to surgery the next day. I wept. As I got ready to leave, we bumped fist, and it was cool. I said my goodbyes to his family and began the slow walk back to my car as he was prepped for major surgery. Would he make it out on the other side? I did not know, but God did, and that somehow we were all good with that. I wondered if and hoped that Jesus would still heal him for his boys. I still left with that hope. Maybe God will do a miracle and let him have his boys. What struck me in the parking structure was the thought that I went to comfort this man for the next step of his journey. But he comforted me in the next step of my day. All that was concerning me about life melted away in that room. And I was reoriented toward what is important in life. Knowing Jesus and loving others. Thank you, Dave, for taking the time to minister to me. Even though we talked nothing about my life, I received a healing. So that's one day of just showing up while we carry our stuff. We never know how it's going to work. And see, day after day after day builds, and that's how you get to the long haul. Nobody gets to the long haul immediately. We do it with many, many short steps. FYI, Dave made it through surgery, and I will visit him again soon. I can't wait. Further update, one month later, he entered heaven.
perseverance or faith in the long haul allows me and allows you to walk down our own paths and still be able to help others. That's what we get to do. My path doesn't always get cleared so I can help others. I help them as I journey my own path. One day at a time. You want faith for the long haul? It only happens one day at a time. What's in your hand to do, do it well. I'm a pastor, so going to the hospital is part of what we do. Do it well. Do it well. This is what happens as beautifully expressed by Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Why? Because he did a lot of preaching with not a lot of repentance. Nothing really coming out of it. But he was told this by God in Jeremiah 17, 7. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. Not everything else. Not if I'm healed or not healed. Not if I'm wealthy or not wealthy. I don't put my trust or hope in any of that stuff. My hope is in God. My hope is in his plan and knowing that his plan is good. So my job is to march out what is in my hands, to be available. He says this, they are like trees planted along a riverbank. So to trust in God and to put your hope in him, you're like a tree then planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Ah, that's where the word comes in. Roots reach deep into the water. There is nourishment. It finds nourishment in the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. No matter what seasons, another version says the seasons, they are not tossed to and fro by the seasons. Doesn't mean they don't endure the seasons. Doesn't mean they don't like particular seasons. Has nothing to do with that. They endure the seasons. Endure means to keep going while you're in the season. Keep sucking up water to nourish you in the seasons. It says this, they are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green. They can still produce and they never stop producing fruit. Whatever you're in right now, whatever you're going through right now, there's fruit that are being produced in that. Fruit can be produced in it. And fruit is never for you to eat. It's what people eat off a tree. The tree don't eat the fruit. The tree produces the fruit for others to eat. And he says no matter what season, long months of drought, the tree still can produce fruit for someone else to eat because the roots go deep. There is still nourishment. See, the roots feed the tree. The tree produces fruit 
And so that is the key. The depth of the roots of our faith are revealed in the trials we experience. How deep are your roots? They'll be revealed in the trial. Shallow roots get revealed. Not so God can condemn us, so he can show us, you gotta go deeper. You gotta hold on. And that gives us the ability to keep producing. That's faith in the long haul. I only have to do it today. May each day be productive in some way. Some way. When you can abandon how you think it ought to be and embrace what actually is, you're present. And then you realize your strength and your resources are scant. You need God. Then you realize, ooh, the real tap root that I need, the most important root, the root that goes the deepest, is trusting God. And know this, God has not brought you this far to go no farther. Right? He hasn't brought you this far and that's the end of that. <laughs> he hasn't brought you this far to just go this far. So there's still farther to go. And all that you experience, good, the bad, the hard, the easy, all of it is being built into you so that the ability to produce fruit broadens, broadens. See, when I became a student of marriage, guess what that enabled me to do? Help other marriages. Because I had fruit from it. The ability to do more requires me to experience more and to grow more that I may help more. That's God's big plan. The ability, I could so identify with those little boys in that thing because I just experienced living with little boys without a dad and mom. And now immediately three months later, God brings two little boys into our life that have no dad and mom. By investing in how do, what do these little boys go through? What is going on? What is, what need, how do I minister best to them? How do, am I there for them? While I'm also investing, how am I going to do this in my own life? Oh my God, I've never experienced my heart dying like this. And like someone said earlier, a piece of their life died. I think it was DJ. I got two chunks of death in my heart. So does he. So how does, how does God take death and bring life out of it? Oh, that's what he does all the time. He's the God of the resurrection. So he takes death and he, he, he has this amazing power to bring life out of it that we may be a blessing to others. So we must practice what we believe. When things get hard, we must double down in investing in it. Why? Because it's in my hand. So all you brothers, all we ever have to do is get good 
at what's in our hand. And be, from that, we get to bless others. And then I get to also deal with the things in my life. Because why? That's in my hand too. That's in my hand. So listen, man. Whatever's in your hand right now, and you don't know what to do, invest in it. Find out what to do. As I always share with people, you're not the first one blazing any trail. You know, that, that old saying, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, that's a lie. Plenty of people have. You're not blazing any trail. You're on a well-worn path. Find out who's navigated that before. Who's done that? And I've told you guys before, we've learned that there's groups out there called Parents of Murdered Children. Never knew there was such a thing. Their literature has helped us. Why? Because all them people feel the same. And some of them have had much greater distances from that murder to where they're at now. And their journey, I can learn from their journey. But I have to do the investing myself. How does it affect my wife? How has it changed our relationship? What is it revealed about my process of loss? How does that work? Then we had to go back. Tell you one other thing about our own journey. You guys want to hear it? Does anybody want to not hear it? You can be excused. <laughs> Just write your name down on a piece of paper so I know who you are, because I, I like my resentments targeted. <laughs> <laughs> what it also brought up in me and my wife is, oh, I've had other losses in my life. And I've learned how to navigate them and not successfully. When my dad died when I was 17, and I think I've shared this with some of you. You know, we had, we're Catholics growing up, and my mom had a prayer meeting every week at our house, and they'd pray the rosary. And she'd have her 10 friends there, and they'd pray it, and sometimes a priest would come. And uh, sometimes the priest that molested me would be there praying because that was a well-hidden secret. And I, it was like, you know, that messed with me too. And... Uh, and we'd pray for my dad to be healed, and we'd pray the rosary, and we'd do this thing, and my mom would light candles at church, and yada, yada. He had pancreatic cancer. They gave him a year to live. He'd live just about a year. And, uh, and then when he died, it was like we closed the book, and we never talked about it again, ever, ever. Eight kids never shared anything about it. So what did I learn? I learned you just push the stuff aside and you keep going. I learned that with being molested. I learned that in a lot of ways. So when my son died, my initial response is we just move away from that. We move away from that, but I couldn't. Because losing your parents, one thing. Losing your child, it's a whole nother world. And that pain was so deep. And Therese, my wife, learned 
her own lessons on dealing with loss, which was very similar. Push it away, don't talk about it. So you got two people who seven years earlier than my daughter, my son had died, that our way of dealing with steep pain is to go into your own room and deal with it away from each other. You, you go and you find your own comfort. You go away. You don't move towards people for comfort because they ain't there for you. You move away from people. So how do you do marriage? Because I wanted to do it good, and we did have a good marriage. How do we do it when both of our perspectives on great loss is to separate out and suffer in silence and then try not to suffer at all? But when it was up close and personal, it, start, it affected our relationship. And uh, when, in fact, when she would cry, and she cried every day, every day, I would just want to move away from her and go like, oh, she's really hurting. Let her be. Let her be. She's really hurting. I didn't know how to comfort her. I knew how to get away because that's what we did. And... So what did I have to do? Oh, I had to invest in it. I'd been with Jesus. The taproot had been deep enough that I don't know what you're doing. I don't get it all, but I, I have learned through my journey with God, and this was a new day and a new thing to deal with. It's like, okay, I got to invest in what's grieving all about. What is this thing called grieving? How do you grieve? What's the right way to grieve? When is it over? Grieving. When does it end? You know, and, and all these things and start, and we started to learn. We learned our grieving style. What we learned growing up about loss and grief. How we internalized that. How we did that. And, and in the midst of this, we got together with all my brothers and sisters and sat around a table one day, 40 years later, after my dad's death, and I sat around the table and said, well, how did dad's death affect you, Bill? My first, my closest brother in age, six years younger. I'm 17, so he's 11. What, what, how did it affect you? The youngest was five at the time. There were eight kids in our family, and all of them were, in home, were at home. How did it affect you, Rosie, who was four years old? What do you remember? She didn't hardly even remember dad. I grew up with him. I, you know, I... I, I, how and we shared for the first time how we navigated because every one of us was an island in themselves and we, when we and so I say all that because every day brings what every day brings but if you invest in it now today I speak to people all across the country that lose kids and have murdered kids and all that other stuff, and I can help them navigate, and I can hear the way they're grieving, and now my ability to expand the fruit. I, I can give them something to eat. I can't take it away, but I can give them something to eat to help nourish them from God's word, from what I've learned, all the different things that can help bring a little bit of comfort to them, a little bit of understanding. I can, I can cry with them. I can grieve with them. 
I understand things. And that's one of the things we learn in the long haul as we begin to, as we journey with God and we start to look back at aspects of our life. We go, oh, that's where I learned this wonderful lesson. That wasn't wonderful at the time. It was brutally hard. That's how I learn. Why do people, and that started way back in the day after I got saved, way back in my beginning journey, is why do people go to drugs? How come so many people go to drugs? What is going on with that? What sets up a young kid to find peace and solace at 12 years old with a needle? How does someone get, what, what does that? And that's what enabled me to learn all this other stuff because Teresa and I invested in it, invested in it. What does that do? And now there's fruit from that. And that's how it happens all the way through life. So what God, see, he doesn't just take us this far. This is your key word, and we'll close here. He doesn't take you, you haven't come this far to just go this far. You haven't. You've gone this far that you may go farther except better equipped. So you will learn backward stuff and you will learn forward stuff. And in the midst of that, you get to minister. I told you a story about one guy on one day in a hospital visit. In the midst of my own journey, I was able to give him some fruit that I had that God had put into me that his word had become deep enough in my life that in the storm, I at least know this, I don't, have to, I don't have to move. I just have to deal. So you want faith for the long haul? Do what's in your hand today and do it well. Amen? Thanks for tuning in to Building Lives with Joe Fury. We're a weekly podcast dealing with healing, restoring, and navigating relationships. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at joe.fury at hisplace.com. Thanks for tuning in.